All right, and then the uh, last announcement I have for you is I told you our, our theme this weekend at Fall Getaway was all in. And we've been saying, hey, God is calling us to go all in with him. He's calling us to go all in, pursuing him together. And he's called us to go all in on the mission that he has given us to extend his love to this world. Now, we have a guest speaker that's going to be with us this morning. And I don't know him super well, but in the few interactions that I've had with him, he seems to me like a dude that is very much all in. Uh, Some of you probably know him better than I do. Do we have any rock climbers out there? Okay, Okay, yeah, we got some... If you love rock climbing, this is a guy that you should meet because he literally lives in a rock climbing gym, or he lives in a church, or he lives in his house. I don't know. They're all the same thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and you're, you're going to hear more about this, but he, he lives over in Price Hill. He bought an old church. He converted it into a rock climbing gym, and uh, I, I don't want to steal his thunder, so I'll let him get into more of the details. But we, we wanted Greg to come and speak here this morning just because uh, he has a heart for the Lord. And uh, he pursues the Lord with a ton of intentionality and uh, just has awesome things that, that God has done in his life. And uh, he's, he's made a lot of sacrifices in following Jesus. And I think that we have a lot that we can learn from him this morning. So uh, please welcome up Greg Icorn. Hello, I'm as real as they come, Greg Eichhorn. So I am a follower of Jesus. I am a husband. I am a father. And I am a rock climber. And I love telling stories. Mostly stories about my favorite person to talk about, which is me. So today, that's mostly what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be telling you a lot of stories and things that have happened in my life. And with a hint of Bible thrown in. So as a warning, some people find me to be a little bit offensive, direct, and a little bit sarcastic. So other people, though, find me to be a little bit silly, charming, and endearing. So we'll call those people the overwhelming majority. But what I'm going to do today is talk about my faults and my strengths that I've had over the years in my stories, hoping that you can be your best self. So, a little bit more about me. So, my intense personality has helped me accumulate many great friends over the years. So, and some okay friends, but mostly just great friends. So, that has also helped me get my great wife that I have. So, I've had the same wife for 19 years. And so, she is my dearest partner, and she is the person that brings my life ideas of grandeur back down to reality of earth sometimes, because she has to. And instinctively, sometimes I'll use the word we instead of I when I'm telling a story, and this is the other person I'm referring to. So Katie has been with me through all of that. So my favorite hobby is rock climbing. So if you put something in front of me that I can climb, whether it's a rock, a boulder, or maybe a piece of art down at Sawyer Point that I definitely didn't climb on top of, uh, I probably will climb it. So, I have beat and set two Guinness Book of World Records in strength. So, this is an exercise called the Turkish get-up. You take a weight flat on your back from the ground, push it up over your head, 
and then you bring it back down controlled. You do that again and again and again, uh, maybe like 1,600 times, and you can get a 24-hour world record that's still holding strong at 74,000 pounds. So other things about me. I've been featured on a cover story of Sensei.com and the Enquire. Uh, I've been on The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome, his podcast, and I've been in a Crossroads-produced video that's seen by 40,000 people in one weekend about adopting kids. So I'm the most unfamous, famous person you'll ever meet in your entire life. I once managed to become the fifth trending world news story. And if you Google Snowfort Dad, you'll see a picture of me and my family because we built an igloo in the backyard and the picture went instantly number one on Reddit. And I was interviewed by world news media for an entire week because of an igloo that I built. <laughs> so I have a ton of medical needs and adopted kids that live with me in my church-converted house that Grant was telling you about, where it holds the world's largest rock-climbing gym. So I've been called the Crux Lord recently, and I think that's sticking around. And the reason I have anything I have as possible is because I love and I follow Jesus. So in my life, I found Hebrews 6 to be so applicable. It says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So earnestly seeking implies a very distinctive effort. So there have been times where I put, not put forth energy in life that I should have and it resulted in failure in times, conversely, that I've put forth a little bit of effort, and it snowballed into the rest of the trajectory of my life. But the most memorable for me is always the times that I've chosen the action over idleness. My point is that intentionality and putting forth effort, not just my intentions themselves, have improved me as an individual in the things that I've done. And man, I love donuts. Most, I think most people just love donuts. So, but I've been told by people and by basic science that donuts are not the most healthy choice of a meal. So, and I kind of know this myself, right? But at the great age of 19, I moved out and I bought my own brand new house. And with this house, I found some wonderful freedoms that I didn't experience before in my life. Now, I can eat anything I want. I don't have to eat what my mom makes anymore, right? So I go to the grocery store. Fruit, no, I'm not buying that, right? Vegetables, I've never even heard of it. But donuts, I love donuts, right? Who doesn't love donuts? So like a turkey preparing for Thanksgiving, I ate donuts. So every breakfast, and maybe one later in the day or whenever I wanted, I ate donuts. So. I find myself <laughs> coming to a place where people didn't tell me until they did that I was becoming fat. So one or two a day is all it took, and I went from being a 145-pound scrawny person to a 190-pound married man in a year. Stupid donuts. <laughs> it's a, the problem was not that I had a donut, 
And it's, it's not a problem having a donut, right? It's a problem that I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. So it could be anything. It could be lack of exercise. It could be soda, beer, carbs. Or it could be dumping pure sugar just straight into my mouth, which I now know is called donuts. So I wasn't being intentional. Since having figured out how my relationship of intentionality with food has worked, I've changed some things, right? Now I have the motto of like everything in moderation. Or am I eating because I'm hungry or because I want something to enjoy? Either is acceptable, but the, the point is that intentionality is literally now the most important value that I hold in practice in my life. Most successful people, I believe, are successful because they're intentional. So I love and I read Proverbs every single day. So that being said, the Holy Spirit says in Proverbs, Proverbs 8, 12, I dwell with I wisdom dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. And a few chapter laters, a few chapters later, we see the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. And again, in Proverbs 21, an upright man gives thought to his ways. So anytime something is repetitive in the Bible, I feel like it's more important. Lots of things that are repetitive just become more important. In Doing the right thing happens when we think about what we're doing. So, shortly after my donut lesson and gaining a bunch of weight, I made some life-changing decisions, but mostly about my lifestyle and my faith, most notably my relationship with God. Up until that point in time, I was a good Christian. I tithed, and I went to church, and I was a young man that most mothers would be proud of. Not mine, but most. <laughs> but Everything that I was doing in my life was coming from a place of being passive and out of a place of what I was supposed to be doing. Nothing was a calling, a deeper purpose, or the pursuit of God in a very intentional way. My life was good, but not embracing the capacity God could have given me with His full power and access I had to Him. So at the time, I attended the Tri-County Vineyard as was the custom on Sunday. And Dave Workman, the pastor at the, the Sharonville Vineyard, gave an amazing message that rocked me called radical generosity. So he talked of different ways that people would, could, and were extravagantly being generous as a part of their daily faith practices. So one of the ministries that he had had to do with giving a car away. So at the time, I had two cars. I had this, at the time, 1993 Plymouth Laser with underglow and custom stereo, and I had my crappy Ford F-150 truck that I wasn't sure what day it was going to break down. So I decided that I wanted to help out a single mom or whoever they were going to give this car to, so I had to make a decision on what I was going to give away, and I decided I was going to give my car away instead of my truck. And it doesn't make sense. I just talked up my car and said my truck was crappy. But why would I do that? Because I had come to a place in my life that I was going to make a decision on what my priority in my life was going to be. I wanted that to be God first. God didn't want what was left over, right? God wanted to be my priority, and I wanted Him to be that in my life. So I give away my first, I give away my best, not what's left over. And since then, things have changed for me because I feel if you're moving, 
it's easier to steer a moving ship. So, I know we didn't just come to hear stories from me. You guys do want to hear some things from the Bible, so I did include a little bit of Bible in this as well. So, let's hear about some intentional people in the Bible as some examples. So, these all come, the cliff notes come from Hebrews 11, and then I'm reading the full section starting at verse 32. So, the title is Faith in Action. So, Abel brought an offering to God. Enoch pleased God. Noah built an ark. Abraham moved from his home and went not knowing where he was going. Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, the wrong child, when he was dying. Joseph spoke about the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Moses' parents hid him. Moses refused royal treatment and left Egypt without fear. Moses passed through the Red Sea on dry land, and the army marched around the walls of Jericho for seven days. Rahab welcomed the spies. If you ever get the chance, go back and read all of Hebrews 11. It's just amazing hearing of these things. So, this is the actual full version, starting in verse 32. Not to mention about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, and who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by strong. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword, and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and living in caves and holes on the ground, and they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. And you probably think, okay, Greg, you're a little too excitable, and that's okay. Your faith is intentionality through your actions. When I reflect back on the through line of all these Hebrews 11 heroes, these people in Hebrews 11 that are doing what God wanted, I see one consistency, and that's action. They all had intentional action. They all did something. God wants us to do something. God will do something amazing in us if we let it. So in Proverbs 20, it says, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. So, where do we get this insight? So, that is a question that you might realistically have the answer to that I don't. Our relationship with God is meant and ultimately should be personal, asking Him questions for help, listening, and processing. So, God gives us His Word, the Bible, Jesus' example, family friendships within church, and direct access to Him through prayer, our experiences, or maybe a convenient or inconvenient life event. So, His power through our pursuit of Him gains our purpose. So, let me tell you some more stories from my experience, and you can stop me if you've heard this one, but, but actually, don't actually because people want to hear it. So, I met my wife and her family at a thrown-together homeschool soccer league when I was 14. And yeah, apparently homeschoolers uh, play soccer, they don't just take awkward family photos. 
So meeting the Reeds running this terribly run soccer venue was awesome. They were horrible at soccer, but I will say they were good encouraging parents, attentive, mild-mannered, and kind. So they also had an attractive daughter. So the Reed family was a diverse family, something I hadn't seen before because Tony in the middle there was black, but the rest of the Reed family was white, very obviously white. And with that, I saw the Reed family, including Tony, as part of their family. I saw how they loved Tony. They included Tony in everything that they did. So he was always with them. He was part of their family. And I saw that, and I really wanted that for my life. I even remember watching them go to bed, and for me, my family never did this, so I thought it was really, really strange, but everyone kissed Tony on the mouth as he went to bed. And again, I thought it was odd, but I saw how Tony was included in their family rituals of kissing the young kids on the mouth as they went to bed. So it's not that I even saw that the Reed family was good Christians. They were good Christians. I'm not saying they weren't. But the way in which they included him made me need that as part of my life. So four and a half years later, Katie was 17, we became engaged. And at five and a half years later, I married that hot daughter of the Reeds. And I know I'm like, you say 18, like half of you are like a couple years older than that. And like, you're like, that's totally ridiculous. My daughter's running the slides back there. She's almost 16. And you figure in two years her getting married is absolutely absurd. And I understand that looking back now. But I will say one thing in mine and Katie's defense. So we were going to be a fully tethered to God family with a purpose, a kingdom-driven family. We had talked so much about our future together that we took a premarital counseling test, like a Scantron-style test, and the counselor said that we scored higher compatibility than anyone she had ever seen take this test before, despite my brain not being fully developed. <laughs> so a few years after that, Katie and I became the youngest foster parents in the state of Ohio. So one of the forms that I recall was a child characteristic checklist. So on this checklist form, we're going to be foster parents, they have things that you would expect on that list. Age, race, sex. They even had some like mental and a little bit of de developmental disabilities. But here's the ones that stuck out in my mind. I recall on a checklist, a kid who is pregnant, a burn victim, severely handicapped child, one who publicly masturbates, or one who starts fires. So you can imagine as a 22-year-old foster parent, I checked no to almost everything on this list. I said, that's absurd. And we got licensed. And then we waited for three months. Three months after being licensed, we waited in this system that has so many kids overflowing in it, and we've never experienced, you know, nothing. We get no calls for three months. We literally had an empty crib and an extra bed set up in a spare bedroom, and we got no calls for kids. 
So we finally got a call three months in, and it was a healthy girl. So I came home from work. Katie came home from work early. We called the county, and the county said that that girl was already placed. And we're like, apparently there's not that much of a need. That night we had prayed, and we felt like God had something more for our lives. And that was not untrue. So, Friday, three days later, we got our call for more. This is baby Elijah. So, Hamilton County called us with Elijah. He was a terminally ill baby boy who was a crash C-section birth. He was hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy for 18 minutes. He didn't have oxygen to his brain, and I had no idea what that meant at the time either. His skull was caving in on his diminished brain, and his spinal cord was actively deteriorating. He was on a feeding tube, and he had two weeks to one month to live. Even better still, inevitably, our house was going to be criminally investigated for his death when he was definitely going to die in our home. So, uh, I know that's a really, like, great, great case scenario, and uh, so I was a solid pass. Like, I'm definitely not doing this. Uh, I didn't want my first son to die, and I don't want to go to jail for my first son dying, which makes very logical sense. And then Katie was a solid yes, which throws problems in the situation. And I told her that we would think it over the weekend, so then I planned on telling her no again on Monday. But that weekend at church, God really spoke to me, and He vividly told me that He would heal my son. And since God told me that He would do that, <laughs> I, that was my son, and that's what we we're going to do. So we celebrated that He was going to come to us, and to no one's surprise, we called the county on Monday, and Elijah was still available. So Katie and I went, and we met Elijah, and it was instant love. I had made a decision again that if Elijah was going to only live two weeks, then I was going to love Elijah the way that God loves me, fully. So I was going to spend my life loving him in his life as long as he was going to live. So Elijah continued to grow. Despite his likelihood, he lived, and he just continued living. And one night, I was sitting sitting on my bed, and we did this a lot, and I held Elijah in my arms, and I held his head, and I prayed for him, and his brain that was deteriorating, and I, I just asked the Lord God that I knew to heal him, and out of nowhere, his skull that was sunken in popped, and his head filled in, and I actually have a picture of Elijah's old shaped head on the left, where you can see his skull is sunken in, and then his picture a few years later on the right, where his sunken in skull literally had filled in in some capacity, in some miraculous and strange way that had nothing to do with me. Except, I prayed, God healed my son, and not in the way that I expected, because he didn't jump up and he said, thanks, thanks, Dad, for healing me. Thanks, God. I'm all the way better. Elijah had so many medical complexities still and continued to have that. We almost lost him a few times over his lifetime. But we eventually fully adopt Elijah. 
<laughs> These are my uh, brother-in-laws here that my mother-in-law had adopted as well, featured in that picture there. They were there for the support of us adopting Elijah. So, our family sadly lost Elijah a year ago due to chronic illness at the age of 14 and a half. He outlived his life expectancy over 400 times more than what they had said, and he died in the most peaceful and perfect way possible. And it hurts. And I still go to bed every single night, laying on my pillow, and holding one of his blankets that he had right next to my head. And it, I told people I wouldn't cuss, effing sucks. <laughs> I brought my comfort friend for, for support. <laughs> Elijah brings and brought me so much joy that I couldn't have experienced without stepping out of my comfort zone and having him as my son. Elijah brought great joy to my life. In the last in-theater movie that we watched together, a friend that had known me for 15 years had walked up, and I had my full man-bearded son sitting on my lap on his ventilator, sitting in this movie, watching this movie with me, and my friend walks up and says, did you hold him that whole movie? And I said, of course I did. Like, that's how Elijah felt love, is by being held. So, this is a wall that we put up in our living room. If you ever come inside our actual house, at the house, it's like a 10 foot by 10 foot, regular size pictures just filled to the brim with pictures of good memories of Elijah. I understand God better because God gifted me with Elijah. I'm a different person completely because of him. Now Elijah's with Jesus, and I can look back on our lives together, and I have pride and joy and gratitude. And I wouldn't have chosen my life to gone differently now, even in the pain of loss and the grief that I have now. I still wouldn't take that back for a second. So I didn't know my path. I didn't know what I was going to do to be part of God's kingdom or with my life. I didn't know what my calling was, but I do now. So it's a process for me that couldn't be repeated for you. My process is not your process. But to date, because of Elijah and God trusting us to him, Katie and I have adopted eight more special and medical needs kids, and I have two foster sons. So I'm sure it doesn't take a complicated math degree to figure out that's 11 kids. And when you think, I bet raising 11 kids feels kind of like 100, you are right. <laughs> so up here we have Manny on the left, Israel, um, who we have the diagnosis that he'll probably pass away in the next two years as well, uh, which is just really painful as well. Um, Kamora, who's running the slides back there, that's Elijah sitting in the chair. This is our last family picture, so we're like, we know it's terrible, but it's our last one. So uh, there's Everett down with his piggy bank, Adric behind him, Katie's holding 
our son Xavier, Zahara, and then we have me holding Malachi, Gideon smiling, probably the best out of everybody, and then Ava making a weird face on the right there. So that's all my kids. So all of my kids have been adopted from the Ohio foster care system, with the exception of our current foster sons that Kate and I are holding, that they're going through permanency stuff right now. Uh, Zahara was adopted from Uganda, Africa, and Israel on the left there was adopted from a different kind of land called West Virginia. <laughs> so a lot of my kids have very unique stories uh, where they beat odds and overcome great challenges. So my small contributions to their successes is largely based out of the ideation coming from one of my favorite verses I've ever experienced in the Bible. It's from James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So I think it's easy for many people to say they have faith if you're just doing it to say you're a Christian, but what creates reality in your life is doing something with your faith. So today I don't have time to tell you all the amazing stories of all of my kids, but I will tell you about my daughter Zahara, Z as we know her. She was actually the face of developmental disabilities, if you ever saw a pamphlet in Hamilton County a couple years ago. She's on all of their publications. You probably saw her on a billboard. She's probably more famous than I am. After Elijah's adoption, Katie and I felt like we may want to move overseas and we might want to become missionaries and help run an orphanage. So right after Elijah turned one, Katie and I went on a trip to Uganda. And with some friends, we wanted to move there and see where we may want to work when we were going there. So we left my mother-in-law in Cincinnati with Elijah, who was needing oxygen for that three weeks because we had pre-discussed it a little bit. But while in Uganda, we went to multiple orphanages and we were really impressed with how they were run, with the exception of the last government-run home we visited. There were two people taking care of 50 medical and special needs people of varying disabilities and it was only two of them, and they were overwhelmed and had no actual care for most of the kids. I mean, in, in the, the States, you would have two people taking care of one kid with any one of the disabilities that these kids had at this place. So we had to ask if any of the kids used wheelchairs or couldn't walk, and they sent some of the other kids to go get our daughter Zahara, and five minutes later, they came and dropped Zahara in front of us, literally dropped Zahara in front of us, and she's only wearing a t-shirt. So she's not wearing pants or a diaper or anything like that. So Zahara was completely naked. She was nonverbal, neglected, and seemed very happy. And years later that we found out that Zahara was actually starved and thrown into the city dump and left for trash. And the only name that she had associated with her was Twabaze, which they told us meant thank God, because somebody found her. And after a few minutes of Katie holding Zahara in her lap, Katie looks up at me crying and says, we can't leave her here. And I say, yes, we can. I, like, we, we have to. 
and, and I mean, we had to. We were literally leaving like in two days. So the next day, I did what I knew how to do best. I bought Zahara a brand new wheelchair that she didn't have a wheelchair, so I bought her a new wheelchair. I left $1,000 for her care in Uganda. And it was the end of the trip, so I got an email address from the people there, and that's all we could contact them with. And then we went on our way. And because we acknowledged Zahara as a person, I think they were a little nervous and they actually moved Zahara from that institution that we had because of the interaction we had with her, and they gave her to nuns of Sister of Charity. And Zahara lived with those nuns for the next three years where she was cared for fairly well. They had limited resources and they were doing their best to love and do the things that God had for them in their life. So back in, back in the U.S., we had minimal Ugandan contact, and I was driving home from the Arnold, where I was um, currently being a competitive submission grappler, and I'm driving home in the backseat of this car, and out of nowhere, God puts on my heart, you left her there. My failure to act when someone abandoned needed me because I was too prideful of the young age and the difficult process. My intentional action time was then, but I'm going to act now, three years later. After much preparation, six months, I prepared paperwork and talked to agencies, and there were just fall through after fall through, and things weren't going well with the process one bit. I felt God tell me, go get her on a Friday afternoon out of nowhere. And so my mother-in-law already knew this was coming again. And so we had five kids at this point, and I left my five kids in the U.S., and Katie and I booked one-way tickets to Uganda, Africa. If you could drill a hole through the world, it's almost on the other side. And we flew to Africa on a Monday morning, two and a half days later. Things in Uganda were sloppy. The system doesn't work the same. It was slow, it was long, but somehow we got a court date two weeks after having arrived there, and we miraculously, and I say miraculously, adopted Zahara after having not seen her for three years, and literally she was brought to court, and that was the second time we ever met her, not knowing her at all. So, if that's not totally ridiculous. Zahara came home after a month after flying to Uganda. We brought her home with a green card, and we had her see the U.S. doctors, and the U.S. doctors said she had worms in her blood, two types of malaria, and a staph infection, if untreated in her knee, that would kill her two weeks later, that we had nothing, knew nothing about. So she got treated for those things, and Zahara is still with me today. When I think back on the three years, what I could have done and what was my role in the kingdom to do at that time when God was using my wife to tell me, like, we should do something about this, I feel like a turd. I, I should have done something. I want other people to look at my life, and I want them to learn from the context of my life and the mistakes and the failures that I have done and I failed to act when I should have. Sometimes there's only one chance to do the right thing. So Zahara ending up having a happy story and a joyful ending in spite of me 
not because of me, Z literally would have died had I not done it eventually. Z and our family are fortunate God made her terrible situation work out despite my lack of action. But he did make it work out. Every day, I still have to choose to work hard and to take intentional steps forward. Each day when I wake up, I ask God sincerely the words from a prayer in Psalm 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Let me be clear, me eventually making the right decision doesn't mean I'm a saint, I'm an angel, or your reincarnated Nana, even though Nana sounded like a really nice lady. On the flip side, I actually get bothered when people normally tell me how amazing I am because I'm not going to go to heaven and be bunkmates with Mother Teresa. I actually fail more than most people. I disengage. I don't admit to many of my failures. And I'm way too hard on the people closest to me. Not only that, but my knee-jerk reaction to most good things that I should be doing is I'm not going to do that. We even have two really great examples today. But a few times, eventually, I have been known to come around and do the things that I feel God has for my life. And when I do, I fully commit to as much as possible and more than what's possible. But it's not because I'm a really great dude with confidence. It's because I serve a great, great God. God enables me to do something, be someone that I'm not in my own power. God get things, gets things done. Sometimes, when I'm being a passionate and intentional person, things that happen around me turn out bigger and crazier than I thought. As I mentioned before, I own the largest home rock climbing gym in the world. So this is a picture of the crux. This is a sanctuary of a church that I converted. We have three top-out boulders, a 26-foot autoblay wall, 34 feet of roof climbing, a bunch of, like, we got a 14-foot trampoline in there. It's just a giant, ridiculous free space to anybody who wants to use it. And I know a couple of you guys in here I've recognized because you've come hang out at my place in my gym. So, it's my intentional space converted into a home. Intentional. I desanctified it. And pretty much any open-minded Christian would think that I took this church and I made it a better space. I welcome anybody who wants to climb, anybody who wants to boulder or do circus or aerial activities to come here with no expectations or judgments of any kind. And this is actually my second gym. This is the original gym. So our first gym was a pole barn on the back of our house just two blocks away from where we live now. People could come and climb the same way they do at my current gym, but it was through like a separate back entrance where I didn't really interact with the people all the time, and I didn't even know if people were out there sometimes. So we'd have an effort to make a conversation and talk to people and have events, but as a separate part of our lives. So our new gym is through our dining room doors. We offer for climbers to use our bathrooms, eat our food, drink our drinks, uh, mess up our house, and have meals with us that we've prepared extra food for. So many of these climbers have also learned about Jesus. And some of them have even committed Jesus as their Savior, and they're included as part of our family. 
This inclusive experience has helped us to love people better and to raise our kids in a way where our family values are integrated into our daily lifestyle. So as a result, I tend to meet more people than most. And I have an observation I'd like to share, but as a warning, I've been told by some of my close friends uh, that I'm still learning the art of tact. So here's my straight shooting. In my experience, there are quite a few people in the church as a whole that are missing their mark on opportunities for extending love and engaging in meaningful activities as Christians. And as a result, Christians have acquired a bad name in the world. It hurts to know that some of us, followers of Christ, as not only lacking in love and compassion and generosity, but as fake people. But I feel it doesn't have to be that way. So this is one of my best friends. This is a guy named Charles. Jeremy did me the favor of editing out all the beer that he had on this trip behind us. So that was nice of him. We rock climb together, we take trips, we rip and razz on each other, as men do, and we hang out at the house. We're good friends now, and he denies remember telling me, but when Charles heard about our gym, he was super excited until he found out that I was a Christian. My dude Charles, he had access to the coolest gym around, just blocks from his house, with a really awesome guy that owns the place. And he didn't come over at all because he heard I was a Christian. That's, it feels painful to say that. And in his own words, eventually Charles was drug over to my house by another friend, and he started coming around. And I didn't cut him down with a Bible sword or judge him for his life being different than mine. So our first encounter was me bringing out a Christmas snack called Buckeyes, the peanut butter chocolate Buckeye, and dropping off a whole tin of those in the gym because we knew someone was out there, and I didn't know that he specifically was out there, but he felt really touched that I came and shared this Christmas snack with him despite me not knowing him. So I always act like myself around Charles, and he realized that Christians were kind of normal, but also very kind of different as well. And now he knows that I care for him as I would my own family in all ways for who he is as a person right now. Behavior and how we live our life has impact on ourselves and those around us. If you dedicate your life to the one true God, then let me tell you who should be changing the world through love, joy, peace, goodness, and what we're doing. It's us. We should be changing the world. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. If you haven't given your life to God, dedicating yourself to Jesus, then I'm not talking to you about doing your part. What I'm saying is, if you aren't already, you as a Christian need to be taking intentional, actionable steps to do God's will in your life now. This is the only way to defeat the current trend about how people see us as Christians in our daily lives is by being the change that we want to see in the world. In James 4, 17, it goes a step further and even says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
I feel personally convicted by this verse, and I know we need to do a few things, and I need a lot of help. We're unique individuals, and everyone needs to utilize their own personal, God-given strengths to further the kingdom of God together as a team. For the purpose of self-awareness and insight, think about yourself, your surroundings, your experiences, your thoughts, and places in the world that you need God or simply need justice, and personally consider, what is something you wouldn't compromise on? What are you not okay with? What makes you sad when you think about it? What makes you angry? What do you love? What speaks to you? What are you wired for? What skills and strengths do you have that others may not? These answers are not magical solutions to knowing your life or how it may even go. What they do is create an awareness of who you are, how you are feeling, and what makes you tick, or what maybe drives you crazy enough to come up with some actionable solution. This self-awareness will aid you in your journey in finding your purpose. In my experience, when you engage in God's kingdom, the impact trickles down to every aspect of your life the more that you're intentional. Everyone has a calling, everyone has a purpose, and everyone has something they can contribute. And some are, and many are not to their potential. But we can change this by dedicating some of our time and our resource to advance the kingdom of God. Everyone is capable of making impact with who they are and what they have in their life by taking steps forward. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So that's what I'm doing today. Let's get to work. Being intentional and taking action that is aligned with God's heart will be easy to talk about and sometimes could be exciting. But that action will cost you something, whether it's your time, your talents, your money, in for sure a piece of your heart. Use your self-awareness, your experiences, and ultimately your heart to determine a direction and take your step. In return, your life will be fulfilled in ways that you could not predict. When I think back about marrying young, adopting kids, losing kids, deciding to leave the U.S. at a moment's notice, or even something as silly as attempting fitness world records, this is my big secret. I never actually stopped enjoying those delicious donuts. They're still delicious. I just now know now that intentionality is so much more than being passive in all areas of my life. So, thanks for coming.